Mayfair 515, Albuquerque Center, Roger, climb and maintain 13,000. Riding down a trail to Albuquerque, saddlebags all filled with beans and Welcome to the City on the Edge podcast with your hosts, Nora Hickey, Mike Smith, and Ty Bannerman. like Los Angeles to me. Welcome back to City on the Edge. Join with the full crew today, Mike Smith. Yeah. Mike um, Smith. And Mike Smith. And Ty Bannerman. And Ty Bannerman as well, yeah. yes. And I guess um, we're kind of we're doing a little a little foodie episode because uh, I had a piece that's only about six minutes long about tacos, and uh, it was like, well, we can't just do a six minute piece about tacos. We should also do some other things. So we're going to talk about other kinds of food uh, related stuff as well. Cool. And I don't know. I was just uh, feeling feeling the food right now this time of year. We got the green chili is roasting um scattered around town i haven't you know it's not like out in full force yet but we bought some uh from uh, some chili from sichler farms and made some kick-ass enchiladas with it and Uh, i don't know it's just time to start thinking about eating again i guess fattening up right before the cold comes and yeah and i think uh we're Lucky that Nora is here with us today because I think she can finally settle this debate mm. about who has the better chili. Now you you're in Colorado now, but you lived in New Mexico for many years. Um, Colorado, of course, is their their claim is that they're the chili capital of the world and and that their chili <laughs> compared to all others, and uh, and New Mexicans have uh, have resisted so. Nora, officially, how is the Colorado chili that you've had? I decree that it is terrible. Terrible. Don't they always mix it with stuff like cream of mushroom soup and things like that? It's like always in a in some sort of sauce or something. Seems common up there. Yeah, I haven't. That's the thing, too. I feel like when I lived in New Mexico and um, the height of the beef, uh, the chili beef, it, it sounded as, as if, you know, the streets were covered in green chili and it was in all this food. And I have to say, it's just not that present. Yeah, um, there's none, right. none of that roasting. I don't smell it in the streets. I don't, what I see in the store in the frozen section is New Mexico. Yeah. So I don't know if it, it's in Pueblo specifically, there's much, a much stronger chili scene, but I would say, um, in the northern part of Colorado, it's pretty lame. Yeah, and you know, New Mexico, this time of year, you you see those chili roasters going up wherever you are. Mm-hmm. It's not just like localized in one part of the state. It's not just Hatch that has chili. Everybody's right. got their own chili, and they're all roasting it out there. So it, it's it's a, it's a strange fight for Colorado to have picked. Um. And from Brandon. your experience, you've had some green chili from Colorado that just, eh, was yeah. it bland? bland? Bland, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I hold out hope there might be some good chili in Colorado, but 
certainly can't you can't call yourself the chili capital of the world when you're right next to new mexico you can't right i mean i think even new mexico like it's awesome here and there's been decades to turn it into what it is now and everything but like it didn't come from here either like remember our guest that said pacame mexico was where it came from right uh strain came from us from the same strain that we got from there so it's like weird that there it seems like like a pr misfire or something they're like it'll be great we'll start like a fun little war oh you mean yeah 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 Yeah, okay I mean, I feel like it's it's a legitimate part of New Mexican identity, even if it didn't come from here originally. It's like it's it's a big part of of who we are, mm-hmm. um, even before it appeared on our license plates. Uh, I feel like nobody ever mentioned Colorado Chile until they decided to stick Colorado uh, Chile capital of the world on their license plates. So they did that. Uh, yeah, it was a license yeah. plate deal. I think that. Whoa. Yeah. I don't think they actually managed to go through with it. They were going to do it. And then New Mexico uh, rushed out those red and green plates. Uh, I like those. I have one. Yeah, they're okay. They're they're my second favorite, I guess, after the classic yellow. Oh, really? Uh, uh, I think I like them best. I like That's the cool. yellow. I don't yeah. know. It's nostalgia for me as well. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Um, mm-hmm. That's wild that they were going to do that. I yeah. bet they spelled it an I, too, at the end. Oh, they probably do. I don't. Yeah. I don't know. That I haven't seen as much of, but as I said, it's just really not that present. Right. Huh. Well, well there you go. It's official. Colorado chili yeah. sucks. Nora's tasted some and uh, gives a gives a thumbs down. Yeah. Sorry, Colorado. You have some things going for you, but that's not one of them. There's um. There, this area was known for sugar beets, but I, I haven't had any um, specific sugar beets. There's a brand of beans that's from Colorado, Cooners. Uh-huh. Cooners, but apparent, I think he has, my husband Clay and I looked him up and there was some, um, you know, like, oh, I think he supported the Confederacy or uh, what? sort of a, like, <laughs> come on. Bean, bean guy. Um, oh well. So, but he still his stuff is still sold and on shelves everywhere here. Oh, uh, too bad. Is a big the the bean magnet of uh, Colorado. I yeah I, that's one of my in, listeners. If you have any Colorado recommendations, I feel it doesn't. I I can't tell what the identity is other than you know kind of restaurants you'd find in any other city beer i mean that's beer, i think beer Collins, that's yeah. where a uh, fat tire is right yeah so is yeah. that kind of a big deal a lot of breweries and totally um and i believe you know there's some counts say 50 breweries some say oh right now there's 46 but there's a ton of breweries the independent craft beer scene is huge here that's- and it does seem very experimental with different types. Um, you know, breweries specialize in different ones. Mm-hmm. So they've got that going for them. Cool. I uh, I found a surprising fact about chili, which is that it's it's not our number one crop. It's like no, our number five crop in New Mexico. Oh, that's number one. Yeah. Pecans. Pecans. Oh. Oh huh. my gosh, yeah. pecans! Yeah. I feel like they don't get enough like regular play like pistachios seem to yeah 
Yeah, but who? I don't know. I don't even think I like pecans. Oh man, or apples. Well, when back when Dixon Farms were around, like they used to say the other red and green in New Mexico. Right. You know, apples were a big thing. But that was a great. Oh, and I, I wrote about that. I, I should have found that article for this. Oh well. All right. Well, um, it wasn't chili that got me kicked off on this episode, though. Uh, it was, um, it was tacos. So, I I recorded this piece already. So, should I just go ahead and play it? You think? Yeah. Today I have a history tidbit, a snack, if you will, and it comes from an intriguing coincidence involving a book and one of my least favorite meals. Let's begin with the meal. Tacos. We had tacos for dinner the other night at Shea Bannerman. You know, the kind, yellow U-shaped tortilla shells that come from a box and then get stuffed with meat and cheese and salsa, and when you bite into them, they break apart like the supercontinent of Pangaea, splitting into tectonic plates, spilling cheese onto your lap and meat grease onto your shirt. I am not a fan, but my kids and spouse enjoy them, so I will partake in the meal in the interest of family unity. But as I was looking at these brittle yellow beef carriers in my hand, I started wondering, what the hell are these things? Where do they come from? They're purportedly Mexican, but notably absent from the more authentic Mexican restaurants I've been to, including the ones in Mexico. In fact, my mind associates them more with 1950s suburban Americana than an actual south-of-the-border provenance. I already had a culprit picked out. Texas, I thought. I bet it was the damn Texans who foisted this self-destructing culinary booby trap on us. But then, after dinner, I did some research, and ooh, I had the wrong suspect in mind. It turns out, and this is a hard thing for me to say, that the first description of a hard U-shaped corn taco shell comes from a 1949 cookbook, a New Mexican cookbook. And this cookbook wasn't written by some fly-by-night New York socialite whose New Mexican experiences were limited to Georgia O'Keeffe paintings either. This book titled The Good Life, New Mexico Traditions and Food, was written by Fabiola Cabeza de Baca Gilbert, a dyed-in-the-wool New Mexican from a long-standing Spanish colonial family that hailed from near Las Vegas, New Mexico. And then this is where the coincidence comes in. A copy of that book has been sitting on my desk for the last several weeks. I've even been thumbing through it from time to time, trying to decide if I wanted to include it in an episode. And, honestly, I had recently come to the conclusion that I didn't want to include it. The book itself is a strange mixture of recipes and an account of a fictional New Mexican family that goes through a year of emblematic subsistence farming trials and travails, liberally sprinkled with New Mexican Spanish customs and practices. And the writing is, well, twee in that mid-century way, thick with stilted dialogue and overly sentimental in its view of the past. But this taco thing reignited my interest. So here, then, it is, apparently the first recorded description of the ubiquitous Taco Tuesday taco, as recorded by 
Fabiola Cabeza de Baca Gilbert herself some seventy years ago. Quote, Tacos are definitely a Mexican importation, but the recipe given below is a New Mexican adaptation. Eight corn tortillas, one tablespoon parsley, one pound boiling meat, pork or beef, one cup cooked diced potatoes, two cloves of chopped garlic, two cups of chili sauce, two teaspoons of oregano, one small onion, one small head of lettuce. Prepare tortillas. Fry and fold in center while frying. Cook meat and grind. Add seasonings, potatoes, and chili. Boil until quite thick. Place meat mixture, diced onion, and shredded lettuce between folded tortillas. Serve with chili sauce as desired. A bit underwhelming, but distinctly New Mexican, and with a double dose of chili to prove it. As an aside, I've seen Fabiola Cabeza de Vaca Gilbert listed as the inventor of the hard shell taco, which is utterly wrong. The recipient of that honor is lost to time and memory and probably wasn't a New Mexican at all. At any rate, U-shaped hard shelled tacos were popping up in California right around the same time that Fabiola Cabeza de Vaca Gilbert, um, whom I'm just going to call Fabiola from now on, was writing her book. And it was the California taco, prepared at the Mitla Cafe in San Bernardino, that entrepreneur Glenn Bell cloned and managed to turn into a culinary phenomenon by mass-producing preformed shells and then marketing them to white people via his restaurant chain, which first went by the name Taco Tia, before changing to El Taco, and then finally, as you may have guessed, Taco Bell. Considering this history and parallel evolution, I think I can breathe a sigh of relief and not blame New Mexico for my most hated food product from the, quote, Hispanic aisle of the grocery store. Whenever I struggle to keep the damned beef in my taco and off of my clothing, I can safely curse the Californians and one of the favorite enemies of the modern world, cultural appropriation, culinary cultural appropriation. Damn you, Glenn Bell. Damn you straight to taco hell. Yeah, tacos. There's a New Mexico connection. Why does it have to be with that kind? <laughs> well, I mean, there's plenty of other tacos that are eaten here, but that was just that just happened to be the first time anyone had written down uh, the fried the fried tortilla shell. Where do you guys stand on the on the the U-shaped, crispy yellow taco? I like every kind of taco. You yeah, like I actually really enjoy them too. Uh, we eat them a lot here. I don't know why that is. Um, I mean, you know, I, I don't have a problem with the individual components, beef or chicken and uh, salsa yeah. or whatever. Like, I love all this stuff. I just I hate the 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 conveyance. Uh. And, and I hear Taco Bell. Yeah, I feel like it's like you said, it it really reminds me of growing up in the Midwest and having taco night and uh -huh. you know, with the diced tomatoes, sour cream, ground beef with um McCormick taco seasoning and a refried beans and a um that U-shaped hard taco shell. Yeah, yeah. And then drunk uh or stone college students too. Totally, yeah. 
Does your whole family like them, Ty? Um, the whole family will eat them. I don't know if we all like them or not, but you know, there's mm. certain foods that some of us really like, and then nobody else will eat. So this is this is one that everybody will eat, even if they don't like it that much, like me. Um, do you have the cookbook with you right now, by any chance? I do, and but it, I can't find it at the moment. I was looking for it right before the episode. It's. You know, I feel like I was maybe a little harsh on it before, but I just could never get into it. it, it it's, you know, it's this fictional story of a, of a New Mexico <laughs> family. And it's like, just, it's, it's stilted and rough, but um, the other, she's also known her other, like kind of big achievement is another book she wrote just a few years before called uh, Good Cookery um, was the first New Mexican cookbook to be published um, in English anyway. Oh, wow. I don't know if there was a, I think there's some wiggle room, like there might've been some earlier uh, publications that, um, you know, people had written down recipes and things before, but this was like the first like English book, you know? Do you feel like the other recipes were, uh, have stood the test of time. Oh, totally. Um, there was one I wanted to read. I wish I could find the damn thing. But uh, one of the things she says, I, I think it's called Morcia, uh, really important in New Mexican food, uh, New Mexican cooking. You, you got to have this stuff. And what it is, is uh, catching the blood of the hog as it's being slaughtered. And then you like need the blood until you get this kind of, um, you I don't know like substance this hog blood substance and then you use that in your cooking it's like damn I, I bet nobody um I bet uh I bet you don't get that at El Pinto that's all I'm saying unless you're on the Atkins diet and you're like give me a cup of blood yeah right exactly um <laughs> hey I, I got a comment I posted a that just that recording on our our Patreon page and um one of our patrons named Moon Sophie Ego. Don't ask me. Thank but, you, Moon Sophie Ego. Said also relevant to tacos in Albuquerque, the Enchilada Air Force, New Mexico Air National Guard unit from Albuquerque was proud to be one of only four Air National Guard units to be called upon to serve in Vietnam. Upon arrival, the unit was assigned the call sign Squid. No one liked the call sign, so they wanted to change it to Enchilada, but uh, somebody else was using the call sign enchilada so they had to think of something else and they uh they went with taco so there's a there's a taco new mexico um uh warfare connection as well yeah wow. I think we have like the best food here i swear it's just like i may i know we're snobby from li having lived here but like you know it's it, and biased but it's just, just so good and it has this like extra level with the spice that other foods don't have it's like and this time of year, yeah. Ah, yeah. just everything's perfect. That's a good smell. Uh, yeah. Just I love, you know, that you can get red or green chili on everything. Or yeah. both. Yeah. Or both. Or both. Do you ever Sorry. order Christmas? Yeah, I but I don't. Do all the time. Do you say? Yeah, Christmas? but I refuse to say Christmas. Yeah, I was wondering about that because Courtney was saying. We were at a restaurant. It's like that person just ordered Christmas. I don't think I've ever heard anybody actually order Christmas before. Christians have colonized enough stuff. They don't need <laughs> delicious chili stuff. I feel like I did because I wasn't because I'm not a native New Mexican. 
Right, so, but you don't call oh. it Christmas. You're like red and green. Oh, you did call it Christmas? I think I did call it Christmas. Uh, yeah. I, d- I don't know. Um, one of my, uh, you know, I love the show Breaking Bad, but one of those moments that totally took me out of the, uh, out of the idea that these guys were actually like from Albuquerque mm-hmm. was an early episode jesse comes over to um brian cranston's house walter's house and brian cranston says uh, oh i'm making uh i'm making an omelet uh new mexico christmas style with both red and green chilies like he just says it like that and you're like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <that's... laughs> i know we have to explain for the viewers but uh yeah a show has to but yeah you that's know clunky. it was just yeah, really clunky. <laughs> we need to think that these characters at least yeah that's badly handled exposition right there that they would know that ahead of time <laughs> i just watched that el camino movie which is filmed all around here the sequel movie yeah what was it they filmed at the al cafe it was all right yeah kind of, kind of felt inessential but it, you know i was glad to see those characters again and um uh see jesse's character get some resolution maybe but um, but they use the Owl Cafe for a major location, but it's totally different. Inside, there's like a buffet, and what? then and then when they look out the windows, they're like in the foothills. Weird. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's always so strange how they play with space. But wow. Well, that's cool, man. Um, yeah. I didn't know that New Mexico connection. I had a hard time hearing all of it, but I got. I think. Yeah. The... I feel like there was a there's a way to play the audio more clearly to you guys. But yeah. I couldn't find the button for it right then. But um, so Nora, you're also you also kind of looked into some New Mexico food stuff. Yeah, but I went off on a different research, baby. The yeah, really where to go? Somewhere Tell us different. About it. Right. <laughs> um, Tell us about your journey. You're like the best researcher, Nora. No, I just I I can't believe how much I like looking in old freaking newspapers. I feel like I I'm know. getting so predictable and I'm sorry, <laughs> but cool, no, it's um, awesome. I found this website, which I, I don't know if you guys have seen, cause I was like, I can't even remember how I got to this. Um, but it's this website that has all the historic newspapers in different of different States. So oh. I went to the, um, you know, New Mexico one and was just looking around, you know, it's from obviously, uh, Albuquerque and then Carrie Zozo, Lordsburg, mm-hmm. Taos, Clayton, whatever. Cool. But that got me to into the library of Congress, which right. I hadn't looked at in a long time. Yeah. Um, I had mostly been using the newspapers.com account. Right. And so then I got into the library of Congress and just started looking up, um, different, you know, hits, between and I was looking really early on. I think I put it between maybe like 1890 to 1910, mm-hmm. just kind of seeing what food would bring up in New Mexico newspapers, and and not, you know, some different agricultural stuff. Nothing that New Mexico specific. Mm-hmm. An interesting thing, not to go off on a tangent, but there was this huge libel case with grape nuts back then. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, um, was that? Was that the Kellogg company doing grape nuts? Uh, no, it wasn't that name, but it was out of Battle Creek, Michigan. So I believe it was part of that. Part of that um, crazy scene. Yeah. And so they, they, there was this repeated um, just articles and ads about grape nuts, you know, and these rebuttals back and forth over 
if grape nuts helps your bowels, you know, you said blocked. How dare you say? Right. <laughs> so that was interesting to, but, but then um, I found something and it was about food, but about the absence of food, otherwise known as fasting. Oh, all right. And that's kind of what piqued my interest um, was the story of a guy. And it just reminded me of different New Mexico stories of which we've talked about before, but this sort of, um, you know, magic of the West of the Southwest that's healing in some way. Uh And um, so a guy, a professor, an elocution professor, uh, (laughs) Wellington Putnam came out to Silver City uh, for his health, his general health. And then, and this is in uh, 1892. And then once he gets there, he decided to abstain from food and he decides to do this to help his kidneys in particular. And to do this, (laughs) he decides he leaves Silver Cities and goes to the Gila Hot Springs um, where he didn't eat. And so he says, this is from the article, quote, during the first 30 days of his fast, the professor says he spent the time in the open air near his tent working on his book, the concluding chapters of which he finished while at the Springs and which is now in his publisher's hand. During that time, he drank great quantities of Gila hot Springs water and took the hot baths. During the next five days, he refrained from doing any mental or physical labor of any kind. During the last five days, the effect of his long fast became apparent and he had to be attended by a nurse. He was so weak, he could not raise his arm and had to be fed. On the morning of the 41st day, he broke his fast by taking soup made of plasma a condensed food said to be pure protein. What plasma? I assume is that is that the same? Maybe it's the blood thing that I you just talked about. Hope not. <laughs> um, and he just you know he did not have any sensation of hunger. He said it cured his kidney issues. Other than falling over and not being able to uh, to get up, and people having to force feed him, he didn't have any problems with fasting and didn't experience any hunger. Yes. Yeah. Other than Um, that one symptom of dying of hunger, starving to death. Yeah. And, and the the paper is really building it up, you know, that this, this is one of the most remarkable feats in history. Oh shoot. Let me find it. Sorry. But he kind of got roasted in this elocutionist um, magazine. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. You should be able to share. Go ahead. Okay. Cause he delivered a speech and and sorry it's a google book so but that's him that's that that looks about right right yeah hmm. there's a book called um, the road to wellville but yeah it's exactly what i was thinking of yeah oh so you read it <laughs> uh no i watched the movie of it that um uh, uh what's his name did um yeah uh yeah but um john was, cusack's <laughs> character is, is that that would be how i pictured him in the book huh. the guy that they that she just showed it's a really interesting idea like the idea of water that can make you thirsty it's like yeah that is horrific that's like really <laughs> like I'm not, like it really that was unsettling um 
but yeah. he, he did his reading did not carry out his theory as to rhythm. It was jerky and he chopped his sentences. At times he seemed inert and he did not make the most of his fine dramatic ending. He left the audience as he found it, so far as conviction went. For while all agreed as to the merit of the paper, he had failed to touch the heart. Oh, so how much did he really learn during his fast? I guess you not know? that much. Well, um, needed yeah. more Gila River water. Yeah. I mean, there are a million stories where like people miraculously get better for whatever reasons or something like that. But so many times, most of the time, it's like that you don't really get anything from it that you can extrapolate for everybody or something. You know, if this guy got well, that's cool. But right. my mom was on dialysis and had complete kidney failure. And she got talked into going to this like new age quack spa. And they had her do an almost two month long fast with almost one working kidney. And that was like a couple months before oh she died. God. I'm sure, wow. I'm sure it exacerbated things. I mean, fasting is really dangerous. And uh, I mean, it, I'm sure it can be useful or beneficial applied reasonably and, you know, sparingly maybe, but, but uh, people take it to these crazy excesses for religious or, you know, uh, do you remember those people who were staring at the sun to get their food? Like they swore that that was, oh, breatharians and uh yeah they would stare at the sun huh. and they called oh. they called it sun eating and wow they believed that that would give them the energy they need to to live oh. and um it doesn't yeah <laughs> sun eaters would be a great name um band name um i yeah but in, in there's a really in, there have been some really interesting articles and pieces on the breatharians people that claim they can live on like prana universal light and things yeah. like that not have to eat but they've always been caught and shown to be fakes right they, yeah like you, little, you have to have food it turns out mm. turns then, out there was a guy in 1905 who beat him in alamogordo and what? he was newsworthy elder herbert crippen he lasted 43 days um and he was being monitored by a doctor dr jr gilbert who was going to write a scientific paper on fasting. Um, I couldn't find that. And then, but I like it. He, he broke his fast with pork and beans. Oh, well, all right. And, and, and some good uh, hog blood. Yeah. And he was none the worse for wear except 40 pounds lost. So. Dang. So everybody was starving themselves in New Mexico. And the... what and year like, did you say this was? Um, the first guy was 1892. This guy, the second guy was 1905. Ah, okay. He, he made it to 43. But the real guy, and this I think we should talk about, because Mike knows a lot about this, is Dr. Henry S. Tanner, who nationally made headlines as a um, starvationist, is what he was referred to a lot of the time. Um, as part of his system of beliefs. And he also did fasts in New Mexico at his, basically he was famous for fasting, which oh, okay. was in line with the set of beliefs, which included vegetarian vegetarianism mm -hmm. and other things. But that also caught my eye in the, in, in the scope of food in New Mexico, because he and others were a part of this commune, this very early commune, mm -hmm. Um, in New Mexico called Shalom. Oh yeah, Shalom, Shalom Colony. Shalom, okay. Um, and, and you know, it sounds like 
in terms of their diet, they, he, they, they brought in um, orphans to the colony and they had a vegetarian diet, but they didn't eat very often. It, it sounds like he wanted to give them um, a breakfast and then no luncheon or supper. Huh. So. Okay. It's better than not eating at all, I guess. Right. A big enough, uh, a big enough breakfast. Um, pretty benign by uh, fringe, fringe uh, commune standards. And um, they just had a bunch of they. I love this description of uh, things they ate. Uh, someone, a person in it, Andrew Howland, ate no underground vegetables. He once oh, limited wow. himself to raw, unsalted cabbage for several for several weeks and found that he had gained in weight, although working in the fields. Huh. A visit to the storehouse caused one to wonder in amazement at the number and names of vegetarian foodstuffs, strange to the eye and palate. Chinese <laughs> foods were especially prized. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Just, yeah, there's a... Uh, Shalom House. How do you say that? Shalem, I think. Or? I, we always called it Shalem Colony. I used to live near Shalem Colony Road in Las Cruces, and so I poked around those ruins and remaining buildings quite a bit. Oh. And there's a museum there and stuff. There's still members of it. I mean, but they're like the Shakers. They don't believe in in uh, having children. Yeah. And so, like, that's a great recipe for disappearing utterly off the face of the earth, pretty much. But um, the uh, they still are kind of proselytizing. Like, check out this flyer I got several years ago for one of their meetings. It says the most mysterious Wait, book. Wait, put it ever... yeah. Sorry. Sorry, sorry. I don't... The most oh. mysterious book oh. ever produced in America. Huh. I have a couple of books about them, and I can only find this one. But um, is it prophetic, ingenious, a hoax, a Bible? Did it really surpass the imaginings of Jules Verne, introducing the word starship into our language? What about its vortexian physics? In a workshop class, we'll explore the epic Owaspe, the book that inspired the historical Shalem colony north of Las Cruces. Join us as we help unveil this book's many mysteries. When? A single three-hour class, Tuesday, April 12, 2005, 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. Where? Shalem Colony and Owaspe Museum in Mesilla. Interesting. Blah, blah, blah. Register. Yeah. Um, and the people that I met, they they kind of, it was at a historical fair where I was kind of like doing some obligatory uh, promotion for my first book. Uh -huh. And... Uh, was there with one of our Arcadia's reps and we were talking with these people and they would like kind of couched it on like isn't this just interesting history but they were like totally like Scientologists basically like with how they talked about Nubro who was the the guy you keep mentioning Nora was like his second I think okay because uh, this and I, this story is not fresh in my mind but on the back it says Andrew Howland was steward for Dr. Nubro who and Nubro was the guy who was like allegedly channeling angels and he would sit down at his typewriter like um and he Burrow, wrote their bible right massage the book out the keys yeah. channeling angels that were possessing him and stuff but wow. they were anti-vax they had all kinds of backwards beliefs and stuff like that but mm -hmm. they were ultimately like kind of insular and you know took in adopted kids and stuff i wonder if the shakers were their blueprint but uh yeah, how interesting because I read a book about Anne the Word, the prominent shaker leader a while ago, and this is like real similar to that. But um, but uh, that's I think it's really funny that our topic was food this week. And, and like, we get to cults. 
<laughs> and mine's about a guy getting lost in the woods and what he ate. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, let's lead back I to cults it. and uh, and starvation in the woods. Yeah. Um, well, I don't There's know. All of us, I think. Uh, but uh, well, yeah. should we uh, move along to your your guy getting lost in the woods, or is there oh, sure to talk about with the the cult? No, it's kind of a pretty cool topic here. I mean, yeah. it's like. Uh, I think but we could do another episode. Bob. We should totally do. Oh, I mean, cool. I know we're mostly Albuquerque, but it's just a really interesting uh, New Mexico story. I actually have a two-part article I just found on my laptop that I wrote about it. Oh, six. So we could have some content or something if we wanted to do that. So, uh, Mike, where did your food-related journey bring you? Oh, okay. So my food, I went through my documents uh, folders and search for the words food and eat and things like that <laughs> uh, with control F. And one of the only stories that I found was, well, here's the food, cantaloupe, granola, a sandwich. <laughs> and also the guy eats grass at one point. Oh, gosh. Um, but, you know, hunger is the best spice. And uh, it's got to say something about the time that we live in, that when the topic is food, Nora picks starvation and I pick also starvation basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but uh uh yeah, I can read this piece, it's not too long. Um, if y'all are down. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Nora, do you have we done justice to yours? Are you okay with oh with yeah? This? No, oh. I feel like my two um starvation stories and then <laughs> yeah. the Dr. Okay. Tanner thing opened a whole new door, which yeah. we go through. We got it. Let's, like let's all forward. like, yeah, check it. We should, uh, okay. All right. So this is called, uh, I just call it Lost in the Sandias. I, I actually have another article I'd like to do about this. I think it'd be really interesting to track down all the people in this story and see how this, this incident affected their lives um, all these years later. Because it's pretty dramatic, but it happens a while ago. Um, Lost in the Sandias. Despite being right next to the city of Albuquerque, the Sandia Mountains contain real wilderness. This, of course, was even truer in past decades than today. A young Canadian man, Stuart McIntosh, learned this firsthand, starting on June 27, 1982, barely surviving to tell it. McIntosh, 20, had been visiting Albuquerque from Martintown, Quebec, here to visit his cousin, UNM employee Judy Erickson, and to study southwestern pottery techniques. The son of an Ottawa area dairy, uh, I'm sorry, the son of Ottawa area, uh, area dairy farmers, McIntosh was an art student set to attend the fall semester at the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design. In one Albuquerque Journal photo, he appears thin and long-faced with dark floppy hair and serious eyes. He had poor eyesight and wore eyeglasses without which he could not see more than a few feet away. On that late June day, McIntosh drove his small car from his cousin's house, leaving the house empty as his cousin at that time was in Boston. This would later be a factor in the story when authorities would be unable to contact Judy Erickson for information on the missing hiker. McIntosh drove east and north, the grayness of the Sandia Mountains ahead and to the right, parked in front of a Sandia Heights home, asking the house's owner permission first, owner's permission first, near the Domingo Baca trailhead in the almost northern foothills in 1982, even less developed than they are now. The trail's cruder, unmaintained, the area less visited. McIntosh wore boots, shorts, and a light shirt and carried a day pack with two days worth of food in it cantaloupe, granola, a sandwich, and two water bottles. He planned to spend only one night in the mountains sleeping rough. He hiked up Domingo Baca Canyon. The identity of Domingo Baca has been lost, says the field guide to the Sandia Mountains by Robert Julian and Mary Stuber, but a Hispano-Catholic shepherd or goat herder might be a decent guess. 
and into a side canyon, into the labyrinthine forest canyon world that hides away downslope from the wreckage of the TWA airliner that hit the mountains in 1955 during a blizzard, a tragic mechanical failure that killed 16 people. Like that ill-fated plane, McIntosh collided with rock after dead-ending at a steep incline, climbing it up to what he called the cul-de-sac, classic mountain canyon topography, where he stumbled and took a 35 to 50-foot fall, sliding, tumbling, smashing his glasses, lacerating his forehead, and leaving him too disoriented to easily find a way out. For a day and a half, McIntosh just lay there where he fell. Then I knew I had to work my way back to water, so I went back to a stream, he told the Albuquerque Journal, reported July 15, 1982. Hiker never afraid despite 17-day ordeal, reported the Associated Press the next day. This stream McIntosh found, he would later learn, was at the time the only active stream in that, air, in that basin, a small stream that flows from the crest. He was extremely lucky to have found it. But here the events of McIntosh's ordeal get uncertain. He had a head injury that would later require two and a half hours of surgery to remove a blood clot. His glasses were broken. He was surrounded by trees, scrub, dirt, rock, and the sky pressed down on all of it, like half of ice. From that same July 16th Associated Press article, McIntosh said remembering what happened to him from that point on is difficult. And instead of feeling fear, he said he just felt out of touch. During the days, the temperatures rose into the 80s. At night, they plummeted to the low 40s. Only at first did he feel he was going to die. Then, according to the journal, he thought, I can't die. When searching for the stream, McIntosh hiked beneath the towers and lines of the Sandia Peak aerial tramway, waving desperately at the smiling tourists passing overhead. Yet the tram's passengers assumed he was simply being friendly and waved back. We might imagine while McIntosh screamed and cried. Uh, McIntosh rationed his food carefully and stayed by the stream once he found it, following it down, too weak to do anything else. For 17 days, he wandered the Sandias as if wandering a dream, unable to see clearly, unable to comprehend fully, keeping his calm despite significant dangers and challenges. During this time, a search party searched for him after his cousin's roommate reported him missing. The search party searched, found nothing, and then stopped. McIntosh grew so hungry, he began supplementing his rations with grass. He was following the stream, but through a head injury-induced delirium, and the canyon was so rugged, his floor often choked with brush. He tried moving along its sides, but those were steep, bouldery, and spiny. A day went by, a week, another week, a day, another day. What was that like? Feeling hungry, parched, fatigued, feeling not frightened, but out of touch. Almost everything a blur, somehow not encountering anyone at all beside the people in the tram despite ending up only two miles from a house. 17 days after McIntosh had wandered out of the city and into the mountains, four volunteers were walking up the stream, which McIntosh was now slumped beside. They had received a report of an unauthorized cabin being lived in back there, but what they found instead was Stuart McIntosh, covered in cuts, scabs, bruises, and dirt, wearing only his boots and shorts, and with his blood-stained shirt tied around him as a bandage. He had made mistakes, he would soon admit. He should never have climbed that wall, and he should have packed more food, a jacket, and emergency supplies. But his later rationing of his food and his finding and following of the stream proves he was no fool. He was a survivor. The volunteers spotted McIntosh. They waved. He didn't wave back. He looked off. He looked, according to one rescuer, volunteer patrol leader Alan Korpinen, quoted by the Associated Press, all banged up. McIntosh said, I think I'm the guy you're looking for. Wow. Holy. It makes me hungry. Yeah. <laughs> no, I want that cheeseburger. Another delicious entry in our food-related episode. Um, <laughs> wow, he got lost for 17 days. That's crazy. Uh, I mean, he must have been just wandering back and forth or something, right? Like, how could you get lost well, for 17 days following a stream? That's true. You think he would have gotten out of there quicker? Yeah. But if he had a head injury, 
Yeah. Maybe he Dana was half laying there. Yeah. Maybe he Lying was there. so disoriented he just couldn't. Could he have been moving yeah. really slowly? Oh, probably. Or maybe I, I just feel like he must have been backtracking or something. Maybe, yeah. Maybe it took him a while to find that stream. Or maybe that day and a half he thought was like a lot of days. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, I, I knew a guy who said he got into a car wreck in rural Alaska one time and just laid on the side of the road for like four or five days. There was just nobody around. <laughs> yeah. And finally, like, I got to get up. Wow. Wow. But, I mean, I but, guess if it hits your head, it's like if your perception yeah. is, uh, is, is altered. Would grass yeah. um, not make you throw up? I guess if it was mixed with other food. Right. Yeah, we can't digest cellulose. So what's that about? Like, is that even would that even help you in that case, or just give your body more to do? Maybe like, was, take more. is there a edible grass up there? There probably some. There must be. Purslane. Hmm. Huh. Or something. There's. I mean, back to Albuquerque. He's like, f this. <laughs> where? Yeah, where did he go? He went back to Quebec. He went back to Canada. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice little trip here. I was gonna remember that place, uh, but <laughs> I think of the Sandia Mountains as so accessible, right? But there are several stories that really challenge that notion. Um, yeah, I think was it the TWA? Yeah, it was the TWA wreck where our old pal Frank Hibben led a group of mm. search and rescue yeah. guys, and they they got up there in the snowy canyon, and they may as well have been. You know, right. in the Alps or something, like they were freezing. And <laughs> yeah, it's really harsh there, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and certainly, a few hikers die every year. Yeah, they yeah. do. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially in winter, mm-hmm. people start going right. up there in the winter and um, get off the trail or fall down, like this guy. Mm-hmm fall down a fall down a cliff yeah they get lost die of hypothermia or something i mean it really is a wilderness there it's just so close but it's got you know bears and tram line i do love that detail that all the tourists (laughs) (laughs) you said it doesn't it's not it's in the city arguably or or, you know an edge of the city yeah so you, you know what I would have done? I would have spelled help out with rocks or with debris or something like that. Chunks of trees, something that you could see from the tram. Yeah. And maybe tried to start a little signal fire right that, there, you know? Yeah. But again, there's that head injury. Right. Issue. I think right. I feel like that's the big X factor here. It's like that could mean a lot of things. I don't know. You know, yeah. kind of steady yeah. reason. I think um, it's kind of a cool story though. I like yeah. I was I found it when I was researching something else and as is the want of all of us, I believe, yeah. um, you know, <laughs> I feel like all your stories begin that way. Nora. Um, found this, but, uh, uh, and just was like totally taken with it. I ended up just like spending all this time at the downtown library, going through the Mike fish, reading about it. But, um, I'm glad it ends with him getting rescued. Or me found. too. Yeah. I want to know about his life. I, I couldn't find him. I couldn't track him down in yeah. Canada, but, um, like how would that affect you? It seems like that would be there might be a bigger, like bigger context uh, piece that could be written about like what happens when you experience like a trauma like that in your formative years that 
could be positive too. I mean, he found out, he certainly found some inner strength and like right. kept his wits about him. It seems despite the head injury and yeah. And uh, or like, have y'all ever read um, the worst journey in the world by absolutely Sherry Garrard about a side expedition of Scott's last expedition, that guy, he had glasses and they fogged up the whole time he was in Antarctica. So he couldn't wear them and he couldn't see anything. So he was basically like blind the whole time. And it's so it's uh, it's really like that's, that does add another level. You just have no idea what's going on around you. That yeah. kind of thing. And, you know, current conditions, I'm like, should I get LASIK while we still have yeah. a lot of LASIK doctors before or the apocalypse. You know, we're all eating grass and sandia trying to survive. Yeah. Yeah. But your corneas can detach if you get in a bad car wreck and you might never be able to go to space because of the G forces because your corneas would detach and blind you. you and like space, what, right? what what if space travel becomes normal in the next couple decades? You know, I would right. like to go and You're not thinking ahead no. Well, <laughs> it's pretty well, yeah. Which direction are we going and how fast you know that's true yeah yeah it's probably a smart move honestly for the mad max era ahead yeah exactly but, um, but not yeah. for the forced uh emigration to mars era yeah Maybe yeah like, <laughs> that's true shit uh, uh, we for well, I feel like now we need to learn what the edible plants in the sandias are so that we can not repeat the mistake. Of Definitely. That would be a great episode. Maybe we could have, yeah. um, uh, there's like some great local herb places and stuff like La Abeja herbs and stuff like that. We could get people to come on the show maybe and talk about that stuff. Cause that would be really cool to know. Yeah. You know, like I know you can yeah. eat four wing salt bush as a cereal and you can, just choke cherries. Uh, yeah, juniper cherries. berries. Can't you do some of that pinion seeds, of course? Can't you eat dandelions? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Dandelions originally brought here as a crop. Eat those all day. Uh, yeah. That was I mean, such a great food episode. Can you imagine <laughs> it advertised like, listen to our food episode? Let's <laughs> our new food episode. And the next one will be about edible uh, edible plants in the Sandia Mountains, but actually it's just going to turn into a serial killer episode. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. The plant is poison. <laughs> um, yeah, but no, I think that's like, I mean, we, we all were just, we kind of winged this episode and bringing random topics around a loose theme. Yeah. And it, it is interesting what emerged. That's, you know. Um, Tells us what our right. interests are. I'm like well, happy, happy to write about tacos, and you guys just and how we feel the cults yeah. and uh, yeah, the cults like tacos. Tacos are always good, so that's tacos, good. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a good, good. Well, I I learned a bit there. Um, I didn't know that about the founding of Taco Bell, but that guy just swiped it from the Mexican restaurant across the street. He was oh, like, totally, yeah, yeah, that was new to me. Thank you for tuning into another episode of City on the Edge. If you enjoyed our show, tell your friends. Like and share our stuff on social media, and check out our YouTube channel by searching for City on the Edge Albuquerque. This episode has been made possible by our supporters on Patreon, aka the coolest people on the planet. To join them in their support of our show and get exclusive access to content, t-shirts, and swag, go to patreon.com slash cityontheedge and sign up for one of the tiers starting as low as $1 a month. This has been a City on the Edge production.